Trail and Ultra Runners, what is going on? What's happening? Welcome to another episode of the Coopcast. As always, I am your humble host, Coach Jason Coop, and this episode of the podcast builds off of our previous two episodes that have been all about mental skills for ultra running. I have a treat in store for the audience today because it is about a very specific mental skill that we probably don't associate enough with trail and ultra running, and that is this skill of being able to perform under pressure. Recent paper caught my eye. The title of it is Pressure Makes Diamond Diamonds, a narrative review on the application of pressure training in high performance sports. This paper was written by Yolan Kegelars. I have been familiar with his work for a number of years in the area of pressure training and also athlete resiliency. And it was an absolute treat to bring him on the podcast to go over this concept of pressure training and speculate on how we might actually do this in an endurance and in an ultra marathon setting in order to improve performance. With that as a backdrop, I'm going to get right out of the way. Here's my conversation with Yolan Kegelars, all about pressure training and how we might apply it to trail and ultra running. Thanks for taking the time. I, I appreciate it a lot. Um, Thanks for the invitation. Yeah. It, incidentally, um, when this paper, I'll probably mention this in the intro, but when this paper came up as you as the lead author, I had this like scratch at the back of my brain. I'm like, I know this author from like somewhere. And it was some of the previous stuff that I kind of brought into that last like email exchange. Okay. So I've I've appreciated your work. Um, I live in, it just as a little bit of a background. I live in Colorado Springs, Colorado, where the Olympic training center is. Mm -hmm. And we've had a lot of influence from the training center just on my coaching career and this a lot of the 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 things that you've uh previously written about have kind of come up in these elite athlete transitions from their career to a normal life and things like that and when we counsel those athletes and work with the kind of the coaches and the team that are around those athletes. We're constantly drawing stuff on that. So I'm very appreciative of wow, nice, the yeah. you've done. Thanks. Thanks. That's, that's always nice to hear. I mean, you, you write these papers and you, you send them out there into the, the world and, and it's sometimes hard to, to see as an academic to which extent the, these, these works are being picked up. So it's, it's always nice to hear that, uh, and you know what's really funny? So since doing this podcast, which is about three years old now, I've gotten that sentiment a lot from a lot of the researchers in the field. They're like, hey, we put these things, these, these things out. And a lot of times we kind of like don't know the impact. I can, t- I can tell you that at least in my, in my circle and my coaching circle and the athlete circle that I work with, which I mean, now this is the proverbial niche of a niche of a niche in in ultra marathon world. But even if we expand it out to the Olympic sports, it gets drawn on more so than I think most researchers appreciate because this stuff gets passed around, especially now on social media and pulled up in conferences and you're not going to get like, text messages alerts every time you get cited in some zoom meeting or something like that so keep keep cranking it out as well oh, nice i mean that, that's very kind of very nice to hear i mean uh, in the end it's what we do it for uh, yeah. it's, it's try to have some some sort of a positive impact so the audience can get to know you a little bit better as we were speaking off air i've i've been familiar with your work 
uh, for a long period of time, but the audience probably is not going to be just because of how lay the audience is and where your work kind of stays within a professional circle, I guess is what I say, professional circle of like coaches and practitioners and athletes. Can you explain to the audience just a little bit more about who you are and how you got interested in your work and what it's currently focused on? Yeah, sure. Um, so my, my background is in, in clinical psychology. I have an education uh, as a psychologist, but I was always very, very interested also from my own athletic career um, in sports. And at, at a really early stage in my development, it kind of pushed me towards this sports psychological research, uh, but always with, with a clinical insight as well. So a lot of the work that I do um, looks at mental health, well-being in sport, and how we can balance that with optimal performances. And actually in my PhD, um, I looked at the development of psychological resilience in athletes. So how can we make athletes stronger, better in dealing with some of those negative or challenging situations that they might experience within their career. But very importantly there, it was through the lens of the coach. So not me as a psychologist, but rather what can the coach do in their day-to-day -day interactions with athletes in order to help them well, deal or manage some of these, these negative situations. From that, uh, several research themes kind of uh, emerged. And, and one of those themes was, was, I think, the topic of pressure training, which we will talk a little bit more about today. And I've been fascinated with this topic, mainly as an observer of elite sport and not just endurance sport. We're going to have to broaden the lens out mm -hmm. to, to kind of all sport and mainly stick and ball sports. And then I think we're going to have a little bit of an interpretive discussion on how it might apply to endurance or actually ultra marathon. But the, the, the reason that I've become fascinated is, is there's always been this lore around athletes who can perform in the clutch, right? The Michael Jordans, the Kobe Bryants, if you're, you know, a basketball fan, the Tom Brady's, if you're a football fan, that if you know, if you give them a shot to win the game at the end of a game, that they're going to do it. Like you just have faith because you've seen them do it time and time and time again. And they have some sort of quality about them that enables them or allows them to succeed in those in those types of environments. And then when you contrast that with the opposite, right, the athletes that choke for whatever reason, they get the game winning free throw at the very end of the, you know, at the end of the game and they, you know, and they and they miss it. It creates this really fascinating dialogue because there are, you know, we divide things into wins and losses a lot in sports, right? And when something something of that magnitude comes down to something that's relatively small or simple across the course of entire game and entire match, it becomes a subject, uh, it, it becomes a subject of a discussion. So the main thing that we're going to talk about is, is like you said, this paper that you wrote, uh, pressure creates diamonds is should we intentionally include these pressure inducing types of activities? I'm going to let you expand upon that definition because you're the expert, but should we intentionally include these in training? what are the potential positive outcomes of it? What are the potential negatives outcomes and how should we orchestrate it as a whole? So I'll, I'll kind of like turn the floor over to you. Let's start to set some definitions of this pressure training up first so that we can all kind of speak on the same, you know, speak the same language, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, it sounds good. Um, it's already a bit of a challenge because yeah. we call it pressure training. But if you look in the literature, you're going to see a lot of different names being thrown around. It's being referred to as well as pressure in training, anxiety training, acclimatization training. 
So I think a, a good important starting point is to recognize that there is no singular form of pressure training. But what we did try to see is in all these different kinds of approaches, what are some of the common features that we a lot of times see? Um, and I think two very important characteristics stand out if you want to speak about pressure training. The one is, as you mentioned, it's, it's having some sort of a, a very purposeful uh, practice manipulation in a way to create some sort of, of pressure or maybe more accurately, a little bit of a stress response. So kind of seeing if we can create situations in practice that, that kind of simulate or emulate some, some sort of, of stress uh, that they might also experience within their actual performance context. So that's the very first uh, important, important feature of, of pressure training. The second feature that we see is that it also includes some sort of a execution of task-relevant skills. Because as I said, sometimes it's been referred to as acclimatization training, but we kind of see that it's not enough to just experience stress. It's stress, but then also working on the tasks that you need to be working on. So it's executing tasks under stress situations within sports. So that's the, the, broad, um, the broad conceptualization of pressure training, let's say. Interestingly, within that, uh, we also saw that this kind of pressure training has been used for several different types of tasks. Uh, as you kind of mentioned, there's, there's the whole choking literature, um, executing a very well-defined sports-specific task, taking a shot, um, shooting a penalty in football. Uh, can we use pressure training for that? But then we also see another smaller section of the literature that really tries to see as pressure training as a way to develop broader coping skills. Can we use it to learn to deal with a lot of different types of situations? So not just a very, very narrowly defined uh, task, uh, sport-specific skill, but rather a, a broader set of potentially stressful situations. So that's the, the broad idea of this, this pressure training. And so let's kind of bring it to brass tacks. Because coaches have used this even without knowing the literature, mm -hmm. right? And, 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 and a lot of this is, is just kind of game simulation, right? Is the way that they have maybe unintentionally done some of this type of training. We want to do a two-minute drill in football. We want to practice the last sequence of an inbound. I use football and basketball analogies a lot, so you're going to have to get used to them. We can bring in, we can bring in uh, European football or soccer in a little bit, but I'm particularly going to use American <laughs> football and basketball analogies. We're going to, we're going to practice. I have, a, I have a background in basketball as well. So that's, that's Perfect. fine for me. Uh, <laughs> we'll do, we'll do basketball a lot. Um, we're going to practice this particular out of bounds sequence that we're going to see at the end of the game. It's going to, we're going to move the ball to half court. There's going to be three seconds on the clock. This is how it's actually going to look. And as I mentioned, coaches have been doing this and teams have been doing this type of training without really attaching the kind of the vocabulary that we're using this kind of like pressure training to it, or at least they're including elements of it. Right. So how would those two situations kind of be similar or different simply rehearsing something that might happen during a you know a very important sequence during a game and then deliberately doing something so that it includes these these elements of having a stress response and ex executing the task correctly what, what's the difference in those types of activities 
Yeah, it, it's a really good point you raise, and and I agree that this is not necessarily something completely new that that we invented. Uh, and actually, the the reason that we wanted to publish this paper is to start giving a little bit more nuance and a little bit more detail into some of the practices that might be already out there that a lot of coaches are using. I think a lot of the examples that you give arguably could be classified under pressure training. So if we're looking at, at some game simulation and we're including specific elements to kind of elicit some of those responses, I would probably call that pressure training as well. What was for us really, really important is to, to look, have a more nuanced look at what's the context around pressure training that might make that sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, what are some of the outcomes that you want to look at? What are some of the other factors that you want to have around that, that practice session um, in order to have the maximum effect? Maybe looking at what are some of the dangers? What are some of the downsides that might be also associated? So I think the idea is not new. It's just trying to have a little bit more nuanced and more detailed insight in, into what might be going on. So let's get into that little bifurcation between what works and maybe three categories, right? What's work? What works? what is probably less effective or not effective, and then what's deleterious, right? Because you you bring up in your paper that there are times where a lot of these practices are actually not at the benefit of an athlete and probably make them worse or less capable of performing said task in that type of environment. Let, let's start with the first one and then we'll kind of like move down the scale. When is it particularly effective? Like how can we orchestrate activities like this? In any sport, you can pick basketball. To, so that they are effective. Yeah, I mean, it, it, we we can we can break this down, um, but in essence, it's about doing it very purposefully, very deliberately. So having a, a very clear goal in mind as a coach. Why are you setting this up? Like, what are some of the skills? What are some of the techniques? What are some of the performances that you want to see in your athletes? So starting from that, then trying to have an analysis of. What is the actual situation look like in the real life performance environment? What are some of the triggers that might um, make my athletes stressed that might hamper the performance of my athletes? So really trying to pinpoint those. And then based on those, trying to look for very specific practice manipulations. We call them planned disruptions, very specific disruptions that try to simulate specific elements of those real life situations. So it's really having a strong idea about what is going on and how can we simulate this? And, and I think that's already a very important first side um, because a lot of times when I see coaches who try to implement these or I speak with them and I say, yeah, but I'm doing it a long time. But this very target element is, is sometimes lacking. They just think that we have to create the pressure and, and, it, and pressure will, will take care of itself and it will make our athletes more mentally tough and make them more resilient and we can have an all, a whole other discussion around what's the difference between the two. Um, but it's, it's going really in detail, like what are the specific simulations? And then I think a, a final very important aspect is looking at, at how can we reflect afterwards. And again, this is a, something that I see a lot of times with coaches is that this reflection moment afterwards is kind of forgotten about. Coaches, again, think that the pressure will take care of itself. We have the, the pressure session. It's over. Okay, on to the next one. No, maybe then it's, it only starts. Can you then have a discussion with your athlete? Okay, what happened? Yeah, wh what were some of the triggers that that occurred? How did you respond to those? 
Did that help you? Yes or no? What can we do different next time? So really trying to break it down into those different steps rather than just creating the pressure. I think that's a very important part of the solution into how this pressure training can be more effective. You know, I was reminded of this uh, as you were going through this. I was reminded of this conversation that I uh, that I read with uh, Michael Phelps's longtime coach, Bob Bowman, who would use things like this in kind of a way that you were describing. And the way that this conversation kind of panned out is they were just asking him, you know, what he was doing with Michael. And there's this one very small piece of it. Most people focus on like how many pancakes he eats and all this trivial stuff. There's one there's one really small part of it where he said, listen, sometimes before we were doing a really important workout or a time trial or something like that, I would take his goggles off of his head and smash them on the side of the pool deck and just let him, let him deal with it. And the, the important part with that conversation as you started to allude to is what did you then do afterwards? Yeah. You could probably have dealt with that in the meantime. And, you know, maybe your heart rate response was different or you kind of negatively reacted to whatever it was, but the, but first off making the actual training exercise deliberate, I'm going to do this specifically at during something that's a meaningful workout or a meaningful time trial. And then after that is all said and done, we're going to talk about how did you react? How did you course correct? And what's the translatable thing in the actual field of play? And I remember him very specifically saying that is unlikely to happen in an Olympic event. Nobody is going to take Michael's swimming goggles off of his head right before the Olympic, you know, butterfly final and smash them on the side of the pool. But I could do that from a training activity in order to give him the skills to cope with something that might happen in it that might happen with a similar flavor. The finals get delayed. There's some sort of like instance at the pool, some, some physical altercation that actually, you know, might happen uh, during the warm ups or something like that. Those training activities are not necessarily to prepare for that specific action. They're prepared. They're 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 designed to prepare the athlete for a whole host of things that we may not be able to predict that could happen at a at a very critical point in Olympic final or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. And and I really like that you you take this example because it's it's one that I also often used when, when I was presenting my PhD a couple of years ago. And actually what you said, like no one is going to smash the goggles, but I think during one of his Olympic finals, actually his goggles started filling with water. So yeah, 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 it, yeah. it did help. But what I, I really like about this example as well is that it kind of illustrates a whole process that you can go through. You can start by having these kind of discussions with your athlete and what might happen. What are some of the, the things that might happen that can really disrupt you. And then if you listen to a lot of interviews with Michael Phelps himself as well, he also kind of uses this, this visualization. Um, he visualizes these, these potential negative situations. So he was already practicing this mentally, how he would respond. And then if you then start adding these, these disruptions to see if the things that you discussed about, the things that you try to imagine how you would respond, are those also actually the things that you're doing within practice? And, and then based on that, again, you can start having these con conversations with your athletes. So I think it really nicely shows that it's more than just creating this, this, this one pressure situation. It's about the whole process that goes, comes before and, and comes after. And, and I think you're absolutely right that, that sometimes it's about 
developing some sort of a coping repertoire. We know that it can help for very, very specific tasks. For example, free throw shooting, penalty shooting. But it might also be, like you said, developing these coping skills that might then be used for a, a broader range of potential setbacks. Just knowing that you have, let's say, a deck of cards in your hand that you can pick and choose from at the right time. So, you know, okay, I, I have these skills in, in, in hand. I, I, can, I can deal with these kind of situations. So let's move to the potentially deleterious ones, because this is an area that kind of fascinates me. I mean, as a coach, you know, not to compare ourselves with medical physicians, but we kind of take a do no harm approach. Like we need to be incorporating interventions, whether it's a physical intervention, like how much you should be running or your strength training routine or whatever, that are very minimum, they're not going to be worse. They should be getting the athlete better. But I do think that this is an area where despite our best intentions, that coaches can really kind of like go awry and, and kind of like mess things up for an athlete. What are some examples or some things that you've actually seen in practice that, that, that we should be avoiding? Yeah. I mean, really, really important point. Um, uh, let, let's say starting with the most extreme situation, the whole idea of pressure training might be abused as an excuse to set up really harmful, abusive practice uh, context. Yeah, yeah. I think nowadays there are very rightfully a lot of attention for how are we dealing with our athletes? Are we providing a safe and healthy environment? In the wrong hands, I'm aware that pressure training might be misused. Really abusive coaches that, that just excuse it as, as a way to say, well, I need to create pressure for my athletes. That's just how it is. I think we can agree that's not what pressure training is about. So if we set aside this, this very harmful, um, uh, abusive practice context, even if the coaches use pressure training in well-intentioned ways um, with, with specific aims in mind, there might be still some negative effects that can occur. We know that if we create this kind of pressure, it's highly likely that our athletes will feel frustrated or annoyed at times. Is that always the, the biggest problem? Maybe not, uh, but we at least have to be aware of that and, and also give them the, the tools to, to deal with that frustration. In more extreme cases, we've also seen that it might actually hurt the relationship with the coach. Uh, one of the mm -hmm. coaches we worked with in one of our studies, he said that I, I did this period of pressure training. It was actually quite successful but it really harmed my relationship with some of my athletes. They, they feel that they can't trust me anymore. So in that relationship, there might be some, some things that, that could potentially go wrong. Some of the other things that we see is that if, if you create certain pressure situations that, for example, really rely on fatiguing your athletes, it could potentially lead to a bigger risk of injury. So that's something to take uh, into account. It could also potentially lead to, to some burnouts. Some authors have suggested that might be the more extreme cases. Uh, and another thing is that if you create a lot of situations where um, athletes have to deal with this pressure and these negative experiences, and they don't have a lot of success in, in dealing with those, it might actually lead to avoidance behavior. So rather than you want them to see to deal with it in the right way, they start doing a lot of things to avoid those kind of situations because they have such, such bad experiences. And then finally, if, if you do it within a, a team context, let's say, 
uh, it might also create this this situation where you create a lot of pressures. You see who, which athletes deal with that them that that pressure well, and you start focusing on these. These get a lot mm. of attentions, a lot of attention, and maybe some of the other athletes start gaining less attention and they start getting left behind. And you sort of create this kind of sink or swim culture. So those might all be potentially. Um, yeah, negative effects to look out for when when implementing pressure training. I, I want to specifically kind of focus on the coach athlete relationship piece because this is more satiating my coaching, you know, uh, uh, knowledge than <laughs> than anything else. But uh, I've whenever I've tried to do this with athletes, one of my personal bigger hesitations with it is knowing that there's a high probability for failure and. I'm not saying that that's bad. You want to put your athletes from time to time at a certain frequency. And I don't profess to know what that frequency actually is, right? At a certain frequency, you kind of want them to get to that point of failure, just one, just as a normal physiological process, but two, just to kind of teach them that they can deal with it, you know, either whether it's in a workout situation or race situation that is translated from a workout situation. But I've always had a difficult time with the setup. We're going to do this. It potentially has a negative outcome. This is why we're doing it. And especially when things are going really good, right? When things are going really good, now you're introducing this thing that kind of has the potential not to derail the program, but to at least stop the momentum. And so I'm wondering what you would think about just about that specific relationship piece. If we can dive into that a little bit better, like how can coaches that are listening to this podcast that want to do something like this, how can they set the situation up for success? I mean, that, that's a, that, that's a very tricky question. And there are a couple of things I would, I would definitely take into account. One, the way you approached it is also what I would recommend. Start by also having this conversation. Um, start by kind of framing what you're going to do. There are going to be times that it's going to be more tough. We're going to create some additional pressure. Give them a little bit of context. Like, why are we doing this? It, it has a very clear developmental goal. It's it's not as a way to uh, annoy our athletes or or just to be mean or or to create some some chaos. No, there's a very specific purpose. So so being very clear about that purpose. Another thing to consider is, can we involve our athletes within this process? Mm. And and this is it, it's it's a little bit of a tricky one because on the one hand, letting athletes, for example, set some of their own consequences. That, that's a way to create pressure is, is setting consequences, some forfeits, some rewards. Letting athletes think about okay, what would be a relevant consequence for me um, might give them some autonomy, might give them some some buy-in into the whole process. On the other hand, sometimes the pressure is created by doing something very unexpected. So that's that's a trade-off to consider as well. Letting them have buy-in, letting them be aware of what, what's going on, but then at the same time, maybe undermining some of those, those effects because they're aware that something is going to happen. So that's, that's something to kind of consider uh, and to balance. And then I think the reflection part at the end is also very important. Yeah. You frame it in the beginning and you come back to it in the end. Like, okay, why did we do this? I, I made sure that you felt really uncomfortable in situation in this situation, but why did I do this? How did you respond? Yeah. What did you do? What lessons can we learn from this? 
I think that's that's an important part of, of, of framing this for your athletes. I think one of the things I'm taking away from this is this is probably something I'm going to change as I or alter as I start to do this or things like this with more athletes is to be very methodical on the front end and say, this is something you might experience during a race. And we're going to get to this in a second. We're going to go down the hypothetical rabbit hole. And I know this isn't ultra marathon isn't your wheelhouse. So I'll, I'll help out as I can. This is something you might experience during a race because you might experience during this during a race. This is a skill I want you to develop. Here's how we're going to develop it in practice and with the specific activity and also the frequency and things like that. And here, what is pro here's what might happen afterwards, right? Kind of like laying out the whole chain of events in advance, which kind of reduces the pressure, so to speak. Right. And we're talking about creating pressure, but kind of reduces it because then they know what to expect. But I think just from a setting the table perspective, that deliberate sequence of events is, is, is at least something that I'm going to, I'm going to make more robust. Yeah, I, I, I'd say spot on. Um, maybe maybe two things to to add there. One is when when laying this out, you can maybe also reflect back on to previous experiences that they had. Yeah. Drawing back on that, okay, what what happened in the last race? What what were some of your difficult points? So, giving them a voice as well in in, in setting out some of those those goals. And then the other part was, okay, they might expect some things going on, but then it's up to you as a coach to, do you want to let them know a lot or do you want to just give them the general idea yeah. and then keep yeah. specific interventions to surprise them, let's say. So you don't have to necessarily lay out the whole track of what's going to happen, but just have them buy into the general idea. Yeah, I'm a I, I'm a less surprises, not more surprises kind of guy. So you're not going to see me smashing athletes goggles on the side of a pool and unannounced. But uh, I, I could definitely see. And that's that's a little bit of my temperament, right? Knowing that you're by setting the table in such a deliberate and obvious fashion, it kind of takes a little bit of the oomph out of the intervention, right? Because they know what's coming and they kind of get a little bit of a heads up. But personally, I'm kind of willing to deal with that compromise because it's so novel for a lot of athletes, right? And whenever you have a really novel intervention, it doesn't have to be perfect because just for the fact of it being novel, it's going to result in some sort of some sort of improvement. Let's go down the theoretical rabbit hole. I'm sure you've been like painstakingly staying up all night trying to think about this translation, but we're going to wade into it. And I just came up with the way we're going to wade into it. Uh, we're going to start out with a track and field example that I'm mm -hmm. familiar with. And then we're going to start to go into the endurance example and then potentially an ultramarathon example. So this is a personal one for me. I, I ran at Baylor University uh, for a couple of years um, in the late 90s. And this was in Michael Johnson's heyday, right? So Clyde Hart was the tr head track coach. He was a super genius. We had, I very distinctly remember this, we had nine out of the top 12 400 meter runners in the world on the same track at the same time doing the exact same workout. And my knucklehead 18 or 19 year old did not appreciate that nearly to the extent that I appreciate having that experience now. But one of the training activities that Clyde would, that Coach Hart would, would, would consistently do across all of those athletes is they would do these relay style intervals. 
So in order to fit everybody on the track, we can't start and stop everybody, you know, at the same time. So he would stage, he would stage people at basically 200 meter increments and do 400 meter, uh, basically relay style intervals with those athletes, or sorry, 200 meter relay style intervals with those athletes, with both the men and the women. So everybody's carrying around batons. Everybody's doing these 200 meter repeats. There's the rotation is kind of set based on how many people are on your team. And one of the things that I now have seen that those athletes got out of that, and I can't profess to how deliberate to our conversation earlier, Coach Hart was being about this. But one of the things that those athletes got out of that is because of all the people on the track and the fact that both genders were on the track at the same time, there was this chaotic nature of when you had to start and stop your interval because there's always a baton pass off and you're always switching around where you're supposed to be in the lanes, just like you would in a four by 400 meter uh, uh, event in real time. But the fact that it was practiced so often, you could see that chaotic nature of the intervals weren't actually perfect because there was all this you know, horse trading essentially going on during the workout itself with who's supposed to line up where and evidently, you know, inevitably a baton would fly off of the track because people would collide or whatever. And those athletes always did really well at the 400 meters because they were the best in the world at it, but also at the relays. They always performed very, very well at the relays because the, the, the chaotic nature, which is novel to a lot of athletes of the exchanges was just so they were just so kind of accustomed to it. Yeah. So that's a situation that I that I kind of personally experienced in track and field that I could actually see that there's uh, some 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 benefit from. But let's wade down the track waters a little bit further into the endurance events, right? Fifteen hundred meter, five thousand meter, ten thousand meter, and things like that. How could you see some of these activities playing out within those specific disciplines? Well. There's there's a couple of, of things, and, and I guess it boils down to what we said in the beginning. What's the specific game? Is it is it the the context of, of the competition itself? Do you have athletes that have a lot of performance anxiety before a competition, at the start of a competition? So that might be one, one way to start uh, working on some of those things. If that's the case, you might start looking at, okay, how can we simulate some of those those conditions that that evoke some of that, that performance anxiety. Can we start creating competitions between athletes uh, within the training set? So can we let maybe keep some score over a, over a practice session or over multiple practice sessions uh, where we have different kind of competitions and we have a ranking and, and people can see where they stand. So that might be already one way to start implementing some of that pressure. We can then start looking at can we... Um, attach some consequences to that competition. And the very typical um, example of consequences are, are physical forfeits. So we have a competition and the loser does some, some push-ups or does some extra laps. I'm not really a big fan of that yeah. traditional way of approaching it, but you might think of it a little bit more creatively. Um, we've seen examples of coaches who said, well, the, the losers of this small competition, they clean up the gym yeah. or they clean yeah. up the pitch and then the winners can go have a shower or the losers, they prepare a dinner for the winners at one point. So you can start getting a little bit more creative in that. Um, I've seen some research where they had the, uh, some athletes perform a song or a poem um, for their, for their <laughs> fellow athletes, just 
as a way to be a little bit more creative in it, um, as long as it doesn't go too extreme, of course. Yeah. You can then also start looking at, can we maybe do something with the environment? Um, can we go to an environment that really simulates uh, the context where, where some of those performances might happen? Can we, rather than practicing on a practice pitch, if we have access to a big stadium, practice in the big stadium, just to, so that they can be aware of, of how that feels to be in that stadium, to walk in. If it's the, the stadium where actually the big events is going to take place, that's even better. Um, we also see sometimes that, that coaches really try to look for some locations that are quite challenging in and of themselves. And, and one of the examples that I, that I love to use is, is a, a national team coach in, in the Netherlands, actually, who was preparing, and this was a team sport, who was preparing uh, his team for the World Cups. And the World Cups were organized in the country of their biggest rivals. So they were the, the, the tournament favorite, and then mm. the, they were going to go to the, the home court of their biggest rivals. And so they kind of thought in, the, in advance, like, what's going to happen? Probably the people are going to do everything in their power to yeah. disrupt us, uh, yeah. both during the events, but also maybe at night at our hotel. So as a way to prepare his athletes, he took them um, on, a, on a training camp to, I, I think it was Istanbul, it doesn't matter where, but they put him into a bad hotel uh, where there was next mm. to a construction site. So they started at six in the morning, they started working, drilling. So all the athletes were sleeping badly. Then they put him on the bus. They had to drive another an hour to the other side of the city for their, their practice events. So their practices, they had some local schools that were being brought in to be loud and annoying next to the pitch all as a way to prepare his athletes for what they might experience later on. So based on that, you can start looking at, at what is it specifically that, that might be going on and how can I start simulating some of those, those specific stresses? I, I want to ask a tangential question to the situation that you just mentioned. And because there are going to be a lot of um, athletes and a lot of coaches out there that start to formulate these things in their head based off of the kind of the guidance that you've just given and a reasonable reaction to that is whatever you are designing represents some type of deviation from the perfect physical workout right absolutely yeah and is and it could be a robbing peter to pay paul Right. You're robbing the physiological Peter. You're reducing the physiological outcome of that particular session for this mental training, for this kind of like pressure training. And what is your viewpoint on how, like how much is how much that compromise is actually worth? Can we can we wrap some general like guidelines around that? Yeah, I mean, for one, you're absolutely right. It's it's a trade-off. It's it's a disruption. We, we call it the planned disruption. It's a disruption mm -hmm. of of what you would ideally be doing a lot of times. Um, where that trade-off lies, I, I think that probably depends a lot of times on the context. For example, if I now go to my own sport in basketball, um, I might be a basketball coach, and I say oh, I have an athlete who shoots fifty percent free throws during the game. That's too low. I'm gonna increase pressure. But maybe that same athlete only shoots 55% during practice. So not that much better. So probably my time would be better spent on creating some skills there, developing those skills um, just purely from a technical perspective. 
same might go from from a physical perspective so that that's probably part of the um, the art of, of a good coach is, is seeing where that balance is i think what's also important to mention is that pressure training should not be continuously implemented and mm -hmm. we also see some research that pressure training is really useful really helpful to improve performances under pressure they don't improve performances when there is no pressure so it's it's you're still looking towards the a combination or a balance of those pressurized situations in practice probably in a smaller amount and then larger portions of non-pressurized training mm. okay so let's move into the ultra marathon world and this is uh th this is this is my wheelhouse so i can lead the dance and then you can comment and criticize and tell you know kind of tell me how to how, tell me how to adapt this and i just came up with this example or this this activity kind of on the spot um so it's a little bit roughed in what so one of the and, and what i want to try to do is is to try to find a real-time example of how we would actually do something like this but more importantly to set the framework so that any athlete any coach yeah. can kind of say okay i don't want to take coop's cheeky example but i'm going to take these elements and come up with something that that i can do so one of the most common, and I'm going to use the word choke point, it's not the right word, but one of the most common choke points that I see athletes go through during races is when their expected nutrition at an aid station is not there. So the aid station runs out of water or electrolyte drink mix or the perfect flavored gels that they you know, have on the table. They like chocolate. There's no chocolate there. There's only strawberry. Or this, this actually happens a lot. Their crew doesn't show up with their planned nutrition. And the effect of their crew not showing up is met. It is an order of magnitude, a greater deleterious effect than what that crew was actually supposed to provide. Like it, it's, yeah. it's kind of remarkable how, how this negatively affects athletes and it, and it shouldn't do that. So the activity that I came up with to do this is to basically blind your nutrition for your long runs. So set out your nutrition in sealed bags that you can't see through mm -hmm. for the next two weeks and have one of those be the, the nutrition that'll work but the flavors that you hate, all of the flavors that you find the most repugnant, you know, repulsive things that you would like never take on a day to day basis. And you don't know what you're going to get until you dig into the bag for your first gel. And then, you know, your whole day is going to be <laughs> your whole day is going to be compromised with these terrible gels that you that that, that work. They're just as effective as everything else. But you just don't simply that you just don't simply enjoy them. And then the reflection on the backside of that is, is you can deal like you, you're going to get through that activity and you're going to be fine. You're going to be bummed initially, but you can deal. So I'll open it up to you. You've seen these across a lot of coaches and things like that, specifically with this situation. What do you think about that? Where would you make your alterations and what are some of the blind spots that we'd be looking at? I mean, it sounds like a, like a, a, a nice example. Uh, one of the initial thoughts I had is, okay, what is, what is the consequence when, when this thing goes wrong, when the aid station, there's not the, the food that, that they expected or the crew is not there. Like, what are the, what are the consequences of that athlete? How are they responding? Um, so 
that would probably be an important thing to then at the end gauge if your pressure training was kind of effective or not. Yeah. Is where you starting to see similar kind of events going on or is the situation so different? I mean, the example that you gave sounds um logical to me, but probably you have to test it in, in practice to see how are my athletes responding. If you then start seeing some of those same responses, you can then start saying, okay, hey, what's going on here? Like, what are your emotions? What are your cognitions? So what, what thoughts are going on? Uh, how do you are, how are you behaving in this moment? Uh, what is the consequence of your, your thoughts, emotions, behavior on your performance? Like, is it really start hampering your performance? Yes or no? And then what can we do different in, in the future? So the closer that some of those responses lie to what you would actually see in practice, the better you can start matching those reflections to, to what you would normally see. There's, I mean, there's almost, I'm going to use a, a neuromuscular term. There's almost a repeated bout effect, right? That you have to kind of like do that intervention, uh, not frequently, as you mentioned earlier, yeah. but a few times. And then you're, you're gauging the improvement by the athlete's response. In it. First time I hated things. I wanted to throw these things immediately in the trash. I wanted to do my entire run without them. Second run, I didn't react as negatively. I, you know, literally sucked it up and choked them down and I was totally fine. Like that type of reflection from a repeated standpoint, from repeating the intervention a few times or several times, it seems like is an important part of it, as you said, to see if the intervention is actually having some sort of positive effect. Yeah, I think so. And, and if you start doing it um, multiple times, you can also start looking at in between can we develop certain specific mental skills that, that would help in, in dealing with this situation? And can you support the athlete in that? Um, for example, in, in this situation, it, it might be part acceptance. It might be part self-talk. Teaching the athlete to talk to themselves, to kind of comfort them, comfort them like, okay, this is going to be okay. I can deal with it. I, I have done this before. In other situations, it, it might be other mental skills that might be important. Um, you might help them visualize certain certain difficult situations. You might help them develop certain routines, uh, work on their breathing ex uh, breathing or do some breathing exercise. But like using these moments in between pressure training might be really mm. helpful to to develop some of those tools that then can be used later on to to deal with some of those other situations. So just as a note for the listeners, my previous two podcasts with uh, Dr. Justin Ross and one of our coaches, Neil Palace, we touched on their mental skills framework that they use for their athletes and the different types of mental skills and how they kind of basically progress throughout the season. And, and I think if you listen to those two kind of in concert with this podcast, with the context that you just provided, you can see how those skills can easily marry up with this type of activity, because essentially you're using and deploying those skills within the activity itself, which acts as a point of reinforcement. Yeah, absolutely. This, a lot of times I see pressure training as, as a way to test some of the mental skills that you might have developed in another context. Yeah. You might be yeah. working with a psychologist or you might do some group workshops and there's still a big gap from working in those sessions to the actual performance context. And what pressure training might help you do is, is have some sort of a, an in-between step to start practicing some of those, yeah. those mental skills, start mastering those mental skills so that they are better, um, 
known and mastered when there's the actual performance context. The translation to the field of play with the mental skills, I simultaneously have always found it the hardest for athletes and coaches to conceptualize how that translation is going to occur. So I'm working on this in practice or even like a lot of the mental skills you're working on, not even while you're running, right? Or we're not even mm -hmm. while you're performing the physical yeah. activity, you're meditating and doing things like that. And sometimes conceptualizing that, that how they translate is, is, is difficult for athletes. Um, and so incorporating them deliberately in some activities helps that, trend helps that translation tremendously yeah absolutely and and i think again there this this reflection point at the end might be really useful to kind of very deliberately and explicitly bring it back to some of the skills that they might have learned before and you might have a reflection point okay you are not dealing so well with this challenge but remember what you learned before what did you learn about controlling your breathing or what did you learn about having certain mantras, certain self-talk that, that might help you in those situations. So that might, might help in making that very explicit bridge. Mm. Okay. So to, one of the things I want to transition to is it's related to some other work that you have done, but I also think that there's a big Venn diagram overlap between pressure training we're going to make this transition to next, which is resilience and this quality that we can bring out in athletes and also ultra running. Like we kind of pride ourselves on being very resilient people. We're, you know, persevering despite the duration and the environment and all of these different things kind of like conspiring against us. And there's all these tales of lore about, you know, how runners finish this race, despite, you know, all the headwinds that they, that they kind of, that they kind of faced. So it's interesting from our particular sport because, because of that. But first, can you set off like, what is this quality of resilience within athletes? And then we can talk about how pressure training might actually fo foster it, particularly yeah. in an ultra marathon environment. Yeah, sure. And, and, Maybe it's interesting to kind of contrast resilience with the concept of mental toughness, which is also yeah. Um, yeah. receiving a lot of attention. Yep. Again, the academic in me will say there's different perspectives and there might definitely be people who are disagreeing with me. But in general, mental toughness is often viewed as sort of almost a trait-like innate quality. You have certain characteristics that make you able to deal with some of those challenging events, you're, you're able to persevere, you're, you're comfortable in those uncomfortable situations. It's really something that you have almost like a trade-like quality. Resilience is much more about the process of adapting. So when we talk about resilience, we talk about a process. What's the distinction? Well, where mental toughness is much more about some of those innate qualities that you have all the time, even if there's no challenging situations, resilience much more looks at how do you draw upon some of those maybe innate qualities, but also how are you drawing upon the resources that you might have in your environment? And I think that that balance between both internal and external resources is very important when we talk about resilience. So it might be that you're very perseverant, you're very tough, but if your environment doesn't help you in dealing with some of those difficult situations, you might still not be able to demonstrate resilience. So it's also about, do you have the support? Are you drawing upon your support? Do you have a, a coach that, that's there to help you in those difficult situations? So looking at where that balance lies, that, that's often what we 
find is really important in resilience and, and what might distinguish it a little bit from mental toughness. You know, I, 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 I really appreciate that distinction right there because we tend to be solo athletes, right? It's there. These are endeavors. We go kind of go out by ourselves or with a small group and we, we pride ourselves on kind of being self-reliant, but the fact that this resilience component has an element with it where you're having to draw part of the solutions to whatever problems from external outside of you, whether that's a person or gas station or, you know, people at the aid station and things like that. And learning those skills of how other people can help you, like help me help you, right? Is the yeah, phrase exactly. that goes around a lot. I, I think is, I notice that in athletes, the ones that, that have the, that particular quality will consistently kind of perform above their pay grade, so to speak, because they're leveraging those assets around them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think I referred to in the beginning, the research I did in my PhD was on looking what, what can the coach do to support um, the athlete. And, and one of the things we saw there is just purely the quality of the, the coach-athlete relationship is one of the, the most important factors. Um, so the, the skills, the interpersonal skills of the coach to establish such a, a good working relationship, a little bit the, the empathy and the emotional intelligence of, of, of the coach to kind of understand like how is my athlete dealing and when are they doing well, when might they be struggling, just to be there to, to also, they don't always have to offer the solutions, just in the right time recognizing, okay, I just give a signal, I'm here for you. And, and that might be one of the most important factors when we talk about, about resilience, just, just having that person there. You know, it's funny. So once again, I'll bring in a personal anecdote. Uh, I'm here at the Canary Islands. The, the Transgrand Canaria is going to start in five hours, five and a half hours from now. It's a midnight start. <laughs> and uh, I'm here supporting a Chinese athlete who speaks no English. And so his wife, who's also serving as his translator, is here. And when I was mentioning this to a colleague, um, uh, one of the first things they said is, well, how are you going to communicate within, you know, the aid stations and kind of blah, blah, blah. How are you going to give them advice, right? During, how are you going to coach them, right? During the event. And of course, I'm going to work through the translator and things like that. But what I said is, is like, listen, I just want to demonstrate that I'm here first, that despite the fact that he doesn't speak English, despite the fact that we have to go through a translator, despite the fact that we're literally on opposite sides of the worlds and things like that, to enhance the coach-athlete relationship, I'm just going to be here. I'm going to make my presence known. I'm going to drive to these aid stations in the middle of the night, hand the dude a gel, which is probably the most like trivial task you can like ask somebody to do. I'm going to hand him a gel. But that improvement in that quality of the relationship is going to be paid forward in all the other things that we're going to do kind of throughout the year. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And, and from a psychological perspective, I, I guess as a coach, you have to give a lot of, of input, but sometimes just being there for someone and just I would say having a listen, but even even in, in Chinese, it's it's not about the, the verbal communication. It's it's probably more about the nonverbal communication. Yeah. Just just being yeah. there for that individual is, is super important when it comes to resilience. Yeah, hundred percent. Okay, so I'm going to leave the floor to you to to kind of wrap up with for the ultra runners that are out there listening that want to do something like this. Mm -hmm. Right, we've given them the framework. We've given them some ideas to start to, you know, ruminate on, on, on things that they can actually do. What's some just real practical 
step one, step two, if they want to deploy some training like this in their training tomorrow or next week? How do they dive off the diving board? I, I think uh, a good first step is, is to have a think about from my experience, from listening to other people, what are some of the, the situations that might happen and that might give me problems that might have a negative impact on my performance? Just have a, a think about it. It's like this what if scenarios. What if this happens? What would that look like? What would be the impact? And maybe also how, how can I start um, thinking about some potential solutions? Once you have that, you can start thinking about okay, what are specific elements of that that I might simulate in my own practice or as a coach, I might simulate uh, for my athletes? So are there specific elements that I can try to simulate? A, a, a very typical um, comment that I get a lot when, when working with coaches is that they say, well, you cannot ever simulate completely um, the pressure or the anxiety or the stress that happens during competition. That's true. I, you will never be able to, to simulate that completely. I will not be able to uh, simulate the anxiety of shooting a, a penalty in the Champions League final. But we see that even simulating it a little bit, even if it's, it's just a little bit on the way to, to what it might actually look like, it can already help you in practicing some of those skills that later on will also help you in the real life situation. So it's not just about having the exact same pressure or anxiety. It's about having a little bit of that pressure and then practicing the right skills that can help you later on. So that's, uh, that's also an important thing to take into account when, when designing this pressure. It doesn't have to be all the way. It's just helping you a little bit on the way and then seeing what, what you can practice then. Can I interject just really yeah, quick sure. before you get to... That's the exact same as any other training activity you would do. You never do the race before the race. The Absolutely. race is always the hardest physical thing that you're going to do. It's most of the times longer from a total physicality standpoint. It's head and shoulders above any sort of training activity. So I, I, I want the listeners to kind of appreciate that fact that, that there that you just mentioned, you don't have to create the intense, the exact intense nature of the pressure within the training environment itself, just like you would not try to recreate the physicality of the race within one training session. It's the same concept. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, absolutely. If I would then go to the, the third step. So first is having to think about what might happen. Second is how can we start simulating some of those things? Third step, still conceptualizing. What are some of the skills that might be needed to deal with this? Uh, and that might be easier for a coach or a psychologist than for the athlete themselves, but have a think about, do I already have the competences to do this or might I need some, some mental skills first? Yeah. Is it better to first develop some routines? Again, these breathing exercises, some self-talk um, as a way to prepare myself for that. I think when we then come to the implementation phase, uh, I would suggest starting progressively. So not just jumping in at the deep end, but starting maybe with some small disruptions, some, some small kind of pressure situations. See how the athletes are handling it. See how you yourself are handling it. Um, based on that, you can start evaluating. Okay, am I doing well? Maybe I can increase the pressure a little bit more. Okay, no, this is not working. Maybe we should tone it down a little bit. Maybe develop some, some other skills uh, to deal with that. So kind of having that back and forth between increasing pressure and, and increasing support to, 
to, to help the athletes deal with that pressure. It's progressive overload, right? It's progressive right? overload. Yeah, it's progressive exactly. overload. It's the same physical concept, right? You lift 20 pound barbell or 20 pound dumbbell one week and four weeks later you go to 25 pounds. It's progressive overload. It's the exact same thing. Exactly, exactly. And and then I would say that the final part of the puzzle is is, is that reflection part. And and it's, I mean, I presented linearly here now, but it's it's all related to each other, of course. But thinking about, okay, what happened? Not just... It's the pressure, but it's thinking about it afterwards and, and connecting back to what have we done before? What can we do better? And then I would say if, if you go through those steps and then I would be really interested to see to see what happens. But I'm convinced that it, it will help your athletes become better at dealing with pressure. How about this? When I throw this into the podcast space, we will do like a call to action right now. You can send me through my website or or they can contact you just through the links in the show notes, whatever they've come up with. And now you have a repertoire, right? And a new sport of, hey, these are what these athletes yeah, have exactly. actually I mean, tried. Yeah, it would be, it would be really interesting. Yeah, I'd yeah. be curious to see it. We'll do that. We'll crowdsource it and maybe we'll do a follow-up and we can evaluate all these and and uh and grade them and see That's how good. they or maybe but yeah, see how they worked or not worked. Um thank you very much this conversation. This was enlightening for me. And like I said, it was an honor for me because I've, I've been familiar with a lot of your work for, uh, for a number of years and to actually get to discuss with the people who have actually done the research that I've admired for so long is, is, is quite a treat. So, th so thank you for that. Where can the listeners find out a little bit more about you and your work? Yeah. Well, first off, thanks. Thanks for having me. It was a, it was a pleasure being here and, uh, Always nice to have these conversations. Um, people can find me um, on, on Twitter. Uh, it's Jolankeg, which is J-O-L-A-N-K-E-G. Um, so that's my handle in Twitter. And they can find my work on, on ResearchGate, where it's Jolan Kegelaars. Johan, thank you for coming on the podcast, man. I hope our uh, paths cross soon at some point. Yeah, it would be nice. Thanks for having me. All right, folks, there you have it. There you go. You can help this podcast out a lot by sharing it with your friends and your training partners and giving it a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. That helps the podcast out very, very much. It's not the easiest thing you get yet to get to. You have to go to Apple Podcasts, scroll all the way to the bottom, write a review. But I'm incredibly appreciative of each one of those reviews that come across the wire. So thank you, thank you, thank you very much. That is it for today, folks. And as always, we will see you out on the trails. Mm -hmm.